Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. This is uh, part two where we're rolling through some of the, the big science that occurred in 2014, some of the little science that's amazing that you might have missed, that, that in some cases we initially missed. Uh, it's not a, an exhaustive set it in gold, launch it into space list. We likely missed some things that uh, you thought were amazing, and we definitely would love to hear from you about those uh, those particular topics, those particular studies. But uh, this is what this is what was on our brain. Yes, the stuff that we thought was pretty extraordinary and wanted to share with you. Now, I do want to just throw in here real quick, though, um, that with some of these issues, there might be a slight uh, uh, so-called shrimp on a treadmill uh, scenario that can pop up. If you're not familiar with that, I think we've talked about it on the podcast before. You had this study where essentially a shrimp was put on a treadmill, and it became kind of the um, uh, the, the kind of a, just the, the the rally cry. Yeah, the for, rally well, cry for pointless science. Right? Money on this, yeah. Even though it was actually a very good study, it was it was that had some importance to it. It wasn't just you know rogue scientists doing silly things with no uh, with no payoff, which is kind yeah. of the charge. And I'm not even sure if it was actually federal federally funded in the first place. Yeah, I'd have to I'd have to to review the the story to to get into the the details of it. But you still see this uh, this idea kind of continue on our Facebook page. Um, I share not only our content, but we try and share um, uh, links to you know current science. It's trending, neat studies, that sort of thing. And invariably, there's one particular user who will chime in. Well, find uh, well, you know, find uh, flight 370 instead. Yeah, why can't we find th- find uh, flight 370 if we're you know chronicling the the genome of the of the mantis shrimp or doing this study or that so, always look, chiming in with well where's the flight 370 then? so what you're saying is that you'll post something you're like oh look extraordinary science mm-hmm. and then someone will be like but but where's that flight yeah yeah like how can and and i don't want to completely discredit it because it's uh on, on one level yes it's you're you're kind of poo-pooing on our celebration of science here um and, and it's not that fun but on the other hand, I, I understand how, you know, we, one can look around at this world where we're, we're finding so much about the world around us. We're landing mm-hmm. things on comets for the first time, uh, in human history. And, and then to turn around and say, well, but wait, then how can we do that and not do this? How can there, how are there still so many holes in our understanding of the world and, right. and, and just our ability to even keep track of our things in this world? Well, and yes, there are very, there are so many unanswered questions and, um, and, and we'll, many of them will remain that way. But of course we have Occam's razor at our disposal. Mm-hmm. So we can always turn to logic to try to cull out what matters and what doesn't and what we can answer and what we can't. And Occam's razor and logic and all of that is predicated on something called symbolic thought. And uh, that just yes. happens to be the first thing that we're going to talk about in terms of extraordinary science because we Homo sapiens are so proud of our neocortex sitting atop our brain, those cortical folds that help us manage our lives and ascribe meaning and symbolism to them. But it turns out that uh, Homo erectus was also doing the same thing way back when. Yeah, this was pretty uh, groundbreaking. I mean, we already had some strong evidence that uh, Neanderthals uh, engaged in this. We had uh, there were some fifty thousand year old um, uh, perforated painted seashells and pigment containers that were discovered on the Iberian Peninsula and, uh, a while back, a re- region that was inhabited solely by Neanderthals at the time. But uh, but here is another uh, non-humid hominid 
who seems to have uh, have. I mean, in a sense, it's almost like some sort of uh, one's tempted to make some sort of biblical comparison to you know myths of of eating the fruit of uh, of one uh, sacred tree or another, like taking that that crucial step towards becoming uh, this kind of. Uh, uh, this kind of rational uh, being that stands apart from everything else on Earth. Yeah, and this symbolism uh, we far too often take as sort of a modern homo sapien thing. But this year, researchers discovered a shell engraved with a geometric pattern at a H erected site known as Trinil on the Indonesian island of Java that dates to between 540,000 and 430,000 years ago. Yeah, that is crazy because that is at least 300,000 years older than the uh, the oldest previously known uh, engravings uh, from uh, South Africa. And when they analyzed the engraving, they 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 feel that it was probably made with uh, like a shark tooth or another hard pointed object to create that 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 fascinating geometric design. Yeah. Now, why is this important? Well, uh, someone like Peter Ulrich, say the professor of psychological and brain sciences at Dartmouth, might say, well. It's because the emergence of symbolic thought had profound consequences for human moral cognition. And he says you might say that the birth of symbolic thought gave rise to the possibility of true morality and immorality, of good and evil. Once acts become symbolized, they could now stand for and be instances of abstract classes of action such as good, evil, right or wrong. Symbolic thought permitted new dimensions of behavior. And I thought that was very interesting because in this way, symbolic thought, which is, of course, what our language is built upon, is the organizing factor. Yeah, I mean, this is the basics of language here. This is the basics of the, the, the brain's operating system itself, you know, that, that we're able to take symbols, we're able to take signifiers, uh, written or verbal, and we're able to have these stand in for more complicated ideas mm-hmm. and then and then essentially... Then you can combine two complicated ideas. You can combine a third. You can start. It's almost a, an externalization of, uh, of, of 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 thinking and uh, and cognition, and then a a re to, to reincorporate that back into the mental processes. Yeah, and um, I mean the fact of the matter is is that Homo sapiens are but one of several human lineages that mm-hmm. use abstract intellect to ponder the world. So that tells us that it's far more ancient than we ever knew. Yeah, and it just drives home again that the, the fact that humans have ascended to this uh, status in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, a, a lot of it simply has to do with uh, uh, with our ability to adapt to different environments and uh, and to, to what extent we were uh, we were able to roll with uh, with with uh, with catastrophic changes that were occurring. Well, and it also means that something as rudimentary as a line drawing of a woman in a dress or a skirt that's put on a bathroom door to indicate that this this room is for females uh-huh. has so many more layers upon it than you could ever imagine. In your brain, there's a whole database built up about that one image, and there are consequences for that image as well. Now, another important thing about the power of symbols is, of course, that uh, that uh, that when you engage with a symbol, uh, uh, be it uh, the symbol in the bathroom, be mm-hmm. it uh, be it a cross, be it the Apple logo, be it a swastika, uh, you know, Eastern or uh, or Western, um, you are actually uh, your brain is actually doing an unconscious. 
uh, analysis and interpretation of that symbol before it ever enters into your into your conscious mind. Like that's how powerful a symbol is. And as we discuss in our, our symbols on the brain episode that published, I, I think uh, um, a couple of years ago, perhaps uh, maybe it was 2013. Um, as we discussed in that episode, I mean, that's that's kind of core to the power of these things. And that's why when you walk around uh, through your environment, you're just bombarded with symbols, uh, be it symbols for the bathroom or corporate, political, religious iconography, you name it. Yeah, and I think that goes back to David Eagleman and his assertions that the conscious eye is really sitting on the sidelines of the unconscious, that all of those decisions that we're making, all those judgment calls are happening undercover, and all of that stuff gets served up in this kind of like uh, consciousness belch of the brain. Right. And we think, oh, I just had this epiphany, or I just happened to think this. Well, no, this, this thinking thing that you just made about that bathroom symbol has been in the works for years. Yeah. And, and whatever ideas that come along with it. Well, and there have been studies before that have, uh, have suggested that, uh, that Christians, uh, behave more honestly when they're exposed to a crucifix, that people, uh, think more creatively if they're exposed to that, a uh, light that bulb. apple light, yeah, the, 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 the light bulb or uh-huh. the apple logo. Yeah. So if you have the, if you're culturally preloaded to be affected by that symbol, then you're kind of, it's kind of like having like little magnets on the wall pushing a, a little metal doodad down a hallway and we're the metal doodad. I know, which always gets back to the whole thing of constructing your own reality and yeah. what is reality and what is illusion in the first place. So that's, that's another, but that, that's all a reason why this is a great study and one that was easy to miss. It's easy to, you know, to scroll through the headlines and you see, oh, well, they found a shell with some scratches on it. Big mm-hmm. deal. I'm going to go read about. Um, you know, what's happening with uh, curiosity. But uh, but when you get down into the deep uh, power of it, uh, and uh, it really drives home how, uh, how substantial the finding was. Indeed, it does. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we're going to talk about chromosomes and tractor beams. All right, we're back. Um, well, yeah, let's talk about uh, let's talk about chromosomes and more specifically, let's talk about yeast. Let's talk about yeast, shall we? This sounds like a PSA. Uh, in March of this year, undergraduate students in John Hopkins University, uh, their their course called "Build a Genome," recreated yeast chromosome three, which controls sexual reproduction. This is kind of huge. Yeah, this marks the first time in history uh, th- um, that a, a chromosome has been synthesized by humans and adopted by the yeast, uh, which, and by the way, yeast uh, serves as one of uh, biotechnology's model organisms. So this is kind of ground level for uh, any kind of future um, uh, breakthroughs that we'll have. And among those future breakthroughs that they hope to, uh, to one day um, synthesize all 16 yeast chromosomes and uh, achieve the goal of what they call synthetic yeast 2.0. Now, the researchers designed the chromosome to include special markers on genes thought to be non-essential. And the markers were engineered so that they could be triggered by an enzyme to scramble, delete, or duplicate genes. Duplicate genes. And then they made 50,000 changes to the synthetic chromosome at specific points in the code, which could have easily killed off the yeast cell, but instead... It took the mutations in stride and reproduced. So that was the other part of this, is that could you kind of tinker with this, mess with it, and, and could it still survive even even though it's synthetic? 
Now, the hope here is that in the future, this will lead to new tests, new methods uh, to uh, to go after specific genes and uh, develop a better understanding of junk DNA, cell division, and evolution itself. So we're getting down yeah. here to the, the core building blocks, and, to, and we discover how to make some of the building blocks ourselves. Ha, there you go. And does that mean that we'll have uh, artisanal synthetic loaves of bread now? That would be that would be interesting. Yeah, when uh, when do we get the first uh, Frankenstein bread? The first because uh, <laughs> you know they'll call it that in the. They in the should. Mood. The they Frankenstein uh, mead as well, right? That's Indeed. made from yeast, I believe. Yeah, it is yeah. fermented. All right. Uh, the next entry that we have is a tiny little tractor beam. And when you think about tractor beams, you probably think about the Death Star or really any sort of alien civilization trying to suck us up uh, into the spaceship. That's right. Uh, you know, you think of sci-fi and it and it's, makes perfect sense because the term comes from sci-fi. Uh, the term tractor beam was coined by E.E. E. Smith. Uh, who's also a PhD, by the way, and a uh, food engineer. Uh, and this was uh, in his novel, 1931 novel uh, named uh, Space Hounds of IPC. IPC stood for Interplanetary Corporation. Uh, Smith was, uh, is considered by many kind of a, one of, one of the fathers at least of uh, space opera. Uh, which of course we you know we see in in Star Wars we mm-hmm. see in Dune uh, in, in any of these properties um, he was a lot of his stuff was published in the pulps of the day amazing stories and the like uh, but he was also widely read by scientists and engineers and future scientists and engineers at the time uh, from the 1930s and on up into the 1970s uh, his his series such as the Lensman series the Skylark series and so he ended up accidentally coining a number of scientific terms, uh, terms for things that did not yet exist, that were purely science fiction, yeah. that ended up becoming a part of the language of science in the decades to follow, including the tractor beam. Indeed. All right, the tractor beam we're about to talk about is not actually on par with, say, something like the Death Star tractor beam, and we just want to mention that because we, we really want to square your expectations here. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like um, advances that we've seen over the years with so-called invisibility cloak technology. Uh, it's not as awesome as somebody putting on a, a Harry Potter invisibility cloak or a you know, predator or stealth system. Uh, what we're able to do in those experiences takes place at a, at a very small level and in the future could have much larger uh, possibilities. And the same thing with uh, tractor beams. Tractor beams have, have been a, a matter of study uh, for, for years now, but this particular study uh, comes to us from uh, Australian National University. Uh, they have a laser-based tractor beam uh, that they were able to successfully pull the part, pull these tiny particles uh, a distance about eight inches or twenty centimeters, which is a, about a hundred times uh, farther than any previous experiments uh, with tractor beams. Uh, during, the, during the experiment, the researchers used a, a laser that projected a, a kind of uh, uh, ring-shaped beam of light uh, with a with a with a hot outer ring and a cool center, and they use this uh, this light beam to suck in tiny glass spheres, each of which measured about 0.2 millimeters or 0.008 inches wide. Uh, so the key here is is heat. Okay, this is how this is is working. The laser warms up the air around the tiny glass sphere, causing tiny hot spots on the surface. The air particles hit the hot spots, and they bounce off, and that propels the sphere in the opposite direction. So you want to make the back hotter than the front, and then you can propel it along. So 
yeah, this is not the stuff of moving around starships or capturing yeah. the Millennium Falcon, but uh, the scientists believe that there could be possible applications, say, dealing with pollution. Uh, you, could, uh, you could successfully extract toxic particles from a given body. Uh, of course, we have a long way to go before this can, can deal with, with uh, greater distances than those uh, plunged in the study. Yeah, I also wanted to mention that there was another tractor beam shenanigans thing going on here, and I'm talking about researchers at the University of Dundee in the UK. They used acoustic tractor beams to pull an object by firing sound waves at it. So what they did is they used this ultrasound device that was clinically approved for use in MRI-guided focused ultrasound surgery, and the team was able to move surprising large objects, well, large in the sense, um, or in this application, of approximately one centimeter in size. And so the idea here is that in addition to just manipulating objects, you could also manipulate fluids and tissues inside the body, and you could deliver encapsulated drugs to the exact location in the body that requires treatment. Yeah, so again, you know, we're in the early days of tractor beams. And, and tractor beam is kind of, uh, to a certain extent, a catch-all for a number of different techniques yeah. of pulling in something uh, w- without actually grabbing it with some sort of a grapple or a hook or what have you. Uh, because there's also uh, there also been experiments where you're using uh, the mass of an object in space to pull in a smaller body uh, in the same way that uh, any uh, smaller massed object uh, can potentially orbit around another. I'm just trying to imagine this technology 50 years from now on the black market. You, know, <laughs> you just, you're walking down the street and all of a sudden you're being pulled into some sort of direction. Somebody sucks all the particles out of your body. Uh, terrible. Particles. Terrible. All right. Uh, we should take a quick break. When we get back, we're going to talk about how uh, there's another breakthrough this year in tinkering with the brain and memory again. All right, we're back. Um, you know we love to talk about the brain and our manipulation of the brain and how, as we learn to manipulate the brain, I mean, we're still learning how the brain works. And in trying to learn how the brain works, we're trying to learn how we work, how our experience of ourselves and the universe works. And so memory comes up quite a bit. We've, we've done mm-hmm. whole episodes on the science of memory, the fallibility of memory. You can't trust it. You change a memory every time you draw it out of your head. And... Uh, we inevitably come back to the the issue of well, what about what about bad memories? What about memories that are traumatic, even that that mess up our our our, our lives on a daily basis? Is there a way we can zap them? Is there a way we can deal with them? Can mm-hmm. we um, eternal sunshine them? Inevitably, that the movie is referenced in any uh, news article covering these breakthroughs. Yes, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind clinics popping up <laughs> around the country right now. Uh, no, but uh, this is interesting. Stanford psychiatrist and neuroscientist Dr. Carl Desaroth uses optogenetics. This is a technique that manipulates neuronal activity with beams of light. Here we go again with beams of light. He and his researchers show that they can manipulate specific memories in mice. They can delete existing memories and then they can implant false ones. And they went so far as to switch the emotional content of a mouse memory from good to bad and vice versa. Yeah, what's important here to to, to break down is that uh, that we're talking about contextual information about an event, uh, where and what they happened. And that's recorded in the brain's hippocampus, whereas you also have the emotional component of the memory, and that's stored separately in the amygdala. Mm-hmm. So 
you know, you have like one file saying, oh yeah, we went to the beach and, uh, saw a shark in the water. No, that memory is, is filed away. But, uh, but then there's the emotional context. Did you see that shark and your feet were still, you were in the water up to your ankles and it just freaked you out to an mm-hmm. amazing degree? Or was it a moment of wonder where you're like, ah, there is a shark and I live in an amazing world and being alive is fantastic. The emotional coloring of that experience, uh, has a huge effect on, uh, on our lives. Yeah, I was just thinking about in terms of tattoos, like it's sort of tattooed on your brain. And this, this process, and this goes back to symbolic thought too, that tattoo of what a shark is in your brain, could be lightened a bit, right? Or could be reduced. You could have a little bit of that tattoo thought removal. Mm-hmm. You could have the residue of what that symbol means, but maybe not fully. Um, obviously, this isn't as simple as just zapping a memory. And there, there's a bunch of complexity involved in here. But it's one more uh, research study that is showing us that memory manipulation is on the horizon, and here's just another way to get at it. And I wanted to mention that optogenetics are predicated on proteins called opsins, and these are found in human eyes, in microbes, and other organisms. And when light shines on an opsin, it absorbs a photon and changes it. And that's how... uh, Dr. Dysaroth has really mm-hmm. gone about this. And by the way, Dysaroth is huge in this field. He's done a ton of stuff in terms of um, opsins and optogenetics. And he also created something called hydrogel. Oh, yes, hydrogel. This was, uh, this was another really cool uh, study that came out this year, uh, which basically answers that question. Hey, if I had a dead rat um, and I wanted to make that rat translucent, uh, how would I go about that? And, uh, and, and that's what, uh, what we're talking about here. The ability to, uh, to take a, uh, a cadaver even and mm-hmm. make it into this translucent, visible man, visible rat body, which of course has a tremendous importance when it comes to studying anatomy, uh, looking at uh, the physiology of diseases, etc. Yeah, this, this substance they created, hydrogel, is similar to that used for contact lenses. And the method is called clarity, and the result is you get those see-through brains, and the innards are revealed in a way that no current technologies can. We're talking about large structures like the hippocampus Mm -hmm. showing up with the clarity of organs and transparent fish. That's pretty exciting. It's like putting a flashlight into the brain there. And you can even see neural circuits in individual cells. So, yes, um, you know, you could... Uh, dissect it. You could have ultra-thin slices examining each slide under a microscope, and, and this is what is traditionally done heretofore um, before this technique came along. But when you do that, you're 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 changing that sample, and you're effectively removing some clues that you might not otherwise see unless it were whole, a whole brain that you could just see through. Indeed. I do have to say, when I initially discovered the study, I was a little bit disappointed when I, of course, realized that uh, the individual must be dead uh, for this to take <laughs> yeah. effect. Because I just, bummer. for a split second, I was imagining like the new fashion trend uh-huh. would be to make yourself translucent. And I was imagining, uh, you know, French runway models walking around with translucent skin. It was. Wow. It was, a, it was a great like three seconds of my life. And then I realized, oh, well, this is actually a practical thing. You never know. Yeah. Again, 100 years from now, we could have translucent engineered models. Yeah. Possibility. We'll see. Now, I wanted to mention that hundreds of papers have been published about not just the hydrogel, but also the optogenetics. And according to Yehud Escaf at the University of California, Berkeley, 
Researchers are using and developing techniques to study brain waves, sleep, memory, hunger, addiction, aggression, courtship, sensory modalities, and motor behavior. Of course, this is in mice and rats. But again, the extrapolation here is that we're, we're getting a far better picture of the brain. Um, and even three years ago, two years ago, you and I were talking about reverse engineering the brain and mm-hmm. how difficult that is. But now there's more technologies online to actually do that in a more meaningful way. Indeed. Now, when it comes to changing the, I, I keep getting hung up on just the idea of changing the emotional context of a memory. Uh, like, I can't help but imagine like a future scenario where, say, 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 uh, say Julie Douglas goes into uh, her local uh, uh, doctor's office, and the doctor says, "Look, I can't do anything about that bad memory that you have about clowns that that, that just set off this whole clown phobia for mm-hmm. you, but I can change the context, but you might have to." Buy some grease paint. You might have to. You might. <laughs> this be, sounds like behavioral therapy. <laughs> you might end up enrolling in clown college when we're uh-huh. done with that. I mean, uh, I'm thinking probably not because because uh, phobias are a little more more complicated than that. Uh-huh. But uh, imagine a world where you could you could simply change a a life altering fear into a life altering enthusiasm for something. Uh, with just uh, with just a little uh, uh, neural tinkering. But see, I don't want clowns to to be eradicated from my memory. I mean, that's part of the rich tapestry of narrative, right? Well, yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of what you get into when you discuss any changing of the brain, or or certainly with the, you know talking about would you change something in the past? Yeah. Uh, which you're which you're talking about when you're changing the memory of the of something in the past. You're essentially changing the past just in terms of your your perception of it. So you kind of get into the same time travel paradox uh, situation. Well, if I remove that uh, trauma from my history, am I the same person anymore? And is that good or bad? Yeah. And if I smoke some cannabis, how does that change the perception of all of it? Yeah. That was kind of a really crappy way to try to transition. And not into a section about cannabis. We're not going to do that. But just to mention that this this might have been the year of cannabis. Oh, yeah. I mean, this was even the year uh, that we actually had a single country fully legalized marijuana, that being Uruguay, um, and a number of U.S. states uh, following, uh, along with parts of Europe, uh, moving in a similar direction. Yeah, so perhaps we will do an episode in in the future here about cannabis and uh, medical marijuana and recreational, and we've already touched on it a bit when we've talked about hallucinogenics mm-hmm. and um, how they may treat depression and, and, and help the brain in certain uh, ways. But it's a, it's sort of a minefield this year, if you ask me. There's so many studies that have come out. Yeah, there have been a lot of studies. Uh, some uh, one in particular that came to mind was was really more dealing with the uh, with the adverse effects. Yeah. Uh, from a, and but it, the, even this study was only looking at it really from an addiction point of view and and, a, and, a, and not a, a a medication point of view. And in terms of developing brains, too, because yes. we know that, that this is not good to introduce substances that can alter brain structures in someone who is not fully developed as not just even a person, but their brain. So interesting stuff here. And uh, and if you doubt the reach of cannabis, then just consider I was that I would say the reach of reefer. That would have been a, the reach of reefer. Yeah, yeah. The reach of reefer. Then know that the word of the year for I believe it was uh, Ox- Oxford Dictionary, OED, is vape. 
Oh, yes. I mean, the vape technology is very impressive. Uh, uh, in terms of uh, marijuana, but certainly in terms of just uh, um, normal tobacco, cigarettes as well. Uh, I've, uh, I've, there's several people in my life, uh, including my, my mother-in-law, who has, uh, who has transitioned from uh, traditional cigarettes to, to vaping, um, uh, you know, for health reasons, for you know, personal life choice reasons. And uh, uh, the, the technology is, is fascinating. Yeah. There's a whole, the whole growth industry of people, do, you know, making their own vape technology and tinkering with it. It's, uh, I mean, just from a, a purely technological standpoint, it's, it's, it's really fascinating stuff. So, well, you know, 1920s people sitting around going, "Did you guys hear that hookah is the word of the year?" I'm just trying to imagine that. <laughs> you know, there's an individual in our office who uh, will remain nameless, I guess, that uh, has uh, like a vape hookah. Yes, he does. Yeah. All right, so there you have it. Um, just to, you know, a, a run through some of the uh, the studies that caught our eyes this year. Again, that's not an exhaustive list. Uh, certainly, there were other studies that uh, that we got a kick out of, that we blogged about, that we podcasted about, that we did videos on, and you'll find all of those at stufftoblowyourmind.com. And if you have some thoughts to share with us, we'd love to hear from you. You can send an email to blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.